I realize how that time in Costa Rica served me so beautifully given what I needed to do there to reconcile with my father, to stand on my own two feet after a divorce, to meet new people, different people. And it was a very, very special time in my life. And I think I just seized the moment. I just seized the time. That's Judith Walker, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Walkluck, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down in conversation with people to hear about the life-changing and pivotal stories of their lives that brought them to this point that they're at in their lives right now. Judy was born in post-war United States in the state of Virginia, and she had a very interesting childhood that involved a lot of time in and out of the water. As she entered her 20s, she had many different life experiences, which included education and work. But by her very early 30s, she decided to make a trip to Costa Rica to go visit her father. That trip would turn into a five-year experience living in Costa Rica, which involved the teaching and ultimately led to her meeting a gentleman by the name of Brent, who she would wind up spending the rest of her life with and move to Pender Island with as well, too. Judith is going to share experiences from all those different periods of time in her life and speak about the importance of art and nature in her life as well, too, in this really great interview, which I say all the time because they're all great interviews. It's so fun getting to do these with people. I loved sitting down with Judy and having conversation with her. It was so nice, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed doing this interview. But before we get started, I want to let you know about something I'm doing, and that's recording people's oral histories for them. Through doing this podcast over the last number of years, I've really come to realize the importance of people documenting their life history. If you've ever thought about recording your own or family member's story, this could be of interest to you. Your personal reflections, lessons learned, family history, life experiences, and whatever else you'd like to talk about for current family members and future generations to cherish. If there's something amazing I've discovered in the process of doing these with people, it's that it's not exactly what people say that is of the greatest importance. It's how people say things. When I've been listening back to recordings that I edit for people, it becomes so clear as time goes on just what that person is truly like. Through the way that stories are told and how people choose to tell them, really gives a unique perspective as to the character of an individual that, in my mind, can't really be captured through writing in the same way. I truly believe that everyone has stories worth preserving and wisdoms to share, so if this is of interest to you, you can find out more by emailing me at myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. That's all one word, myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. If you have any questions for me, I would be more than happy to answer them. So, thank you very much for listening to that, and now a little bit of music, and then my interview with Judith Walker. Is this kind of like a love story between (laughs) you and Brent? This This is a love story. 
and I came to Pender for love. But I have to say, it was quite an adjustment coming here. Because in 1985, about 75% of the population was retired, and the young people seemed to be pretty much in established groups. And um, there was a lot of curiosity about me, a lot of curiosity about why Brent would bring a foreign woman here to live with him, because at that time he was about 34 years old and quite the the bachelor. So my appearing on the scene was um, kind of a mixed bag because it, it was about love, but it was also about finding comfort here, finding acceptance, which took some time, took some time. And how did you meet Brent? I met Brent on the beach. Brent had come down with Bill and Tecla Deverell and um, Gordy Henshaw and uh, Brian Taylor and two people, no, one other person, uh, uh, a lawyer who was a friend of Bill's uh, from Van- from Victoria. And um, I had met Tecla the summer before um, at an art show that I was putting together for Sea Festival that was held in this small Costa Rican town every year. So I saw this group in Tecla sitting on the beach at a table, and I went over to say hello to Tecla, and that's when Brent and I met and looked at each other. And I think at that moment, we just knew. So. Of course, he wanted to see me that night, and we did go out with some people for pizza. And then he wanted to see me the next night. And I said, oh, no, 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 I have classes tomorrow. Can't do that. I'll see you Wednesday. I'll come to the beach. Because I, I, you know, I lived in Costa Rica for almost five years. And I know, you know, some tourists come there for a good time. And you know, they like to make connection with the locals and maybe expats. And I was a little cautious, I'll put it that way. You know, I wasn't going to, even though, you know, I was feeling some things, I just put the brakes on it, on those feelings for a bit. And um, we met on a Sunday. We went out for dinner on a Wednesday, and we've been together ever since. Okay. All right. How long did it take for uh, him to uh, suggest moving back to Canada with him? Well, um, it didn't take too long, but I I had one condition, and that was that we'd return to Costa Rica every year uh, for a period of time. And he was agreeable to that because he really enjoyed that environment and the people that he met. And actually, Bill and Tecla wanted to build a house there. So they decided that Brent would be the guy to build them a house. So that gave us a reason to come back uh, the next year and start on their house. And uh, that's how Brent learned Spanish, actually, by working with Costa Rican carpenters, et cetera. And uh, he really enjoyed the experience. And uh, we both had feet in that community then, which was nice. 
Okay. Yeah. And so that's pretty cool going back to Costa Rica once every year. What months would you go back? We'd go back um, usually in December, sometimes November, and stay until March because it would get really hot in February and March, particularly March. So we'd always head back this way. Sounds like a great time to uh, vacate Bender Island. Oh, it was. It was. It really was. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to catch up with uh, all the details or as many as we can fit in about your experience about being on Pender uh, Mm -hmm. once you came to live here. But we're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to get to find out how you actually arrived in Costa Rica. And we're going to take the uh, the slow road there because we're going to find out where you were born. Where were you born, Judy? <laughs> I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, in a hospital there. Um, I was the third of seven children. And um, my um, father was at war uh, prior I was born about a year after the war ended, and um, I had an older brother, and unfortunately, an older sister died when she was eight years old during during the war. Um, so our family grew pretty fast after my father returned from the war, and I was the first of the second batch of kids. And... Um, we lived on the beach, and then we eventually moved to Lincoln Bay, which is a tributary to the famous Chesapeake Bay. And I had a pretty idyllic childhood. In fact, it's the environment is so strikingly similar to Pender Island. Um, we lived on a little island. There were only three houses on the island. But uh, Causeway had been constructed over to the island, so it was easy access. Big, tall trees, oak trees and pines, and I spent a lot of time in the woods and on the water, and was always, always outside as a youngster. And uh, I appreciate this environment and that environment because... I recognize how important that is, how important that was in my life, and how important it can be in young people's lives today. Certainly, definitely. Nature is where where it's at, definitely. That's right. I haven't looked at a map of the United States recently. Where exactly is Virginia, actually? Well, Virginia is just south of Washington, D.C., and north of North Carolina. Okay. It's about midway down the eastern seaboard. And yeah. so in that state, uh, during that time, so we're, we're talking about the uh, late 40s, 50s, yes. what was Virginia known for? Oh, uh, peanuts, Smithfield ham, uh, the military. <laughs> like there were about 50 different military installations around where I grew up there. It's almost shocking, um, but the Hampton Roads area is strategic uh, military area. If anything's ever struck, it would be struck there for sure because of the the infrastructure and the the ships and the the navy. There were jet bases and naval bases and army forts and you name it. The whole 
whole gamut of military was, and I don't know to today if it's still as prolific as it was then, but um, it was a community that was often in flux because of the people moving in and out of Virginia Beach because of the military. My father was in the moving business, so he had contracts with the government, so he was moving people around all the time. It also depended, Virginia Beach also uh, depended on uh, seasonal tourism. In the summer, it just boomed. And in the winter, it was much quieter, much okay. like Pender Island. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. tourist community. Yeah. And so I'm so uh, kind of stunned to hear that you lived on a small island that had only three homes, you said? Mm-hmm. And they built a causeway to it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. How, how large was the island, roughly? Not very large. Largely, I think it has five homes on it now. Wow. And But when we were living there, it was just three. But, you know, in those days, it wasn't a big deal. You know, now it's very upscale property. But then, you know, when my father, actually my father traded a cement block house that he had built on the beach where we lived until I was six, for an old log cabin that he remodeled and added on to. So uh, it was it was just, you know, we're kind of going to the country. <laughs> you said your dad was in the moving business. Yes. And so uh, he participated in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, yes, he was in Europe. Okay. Mm-hmm. And actually, sorry, what, what was your father's name? His name was Lit. His full name was Littleton Banks. Walker. That's a great name. <laughs> it is, really. And my name is Judith Littleton. I'm named after my father. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. All mm-hmm. right. And so he came back from the war and then he had contracts with the military to... Uh, he, had a, he had a furniture business at first, like a furniture restoring business. My grandmother, my mother's mother was in the antique business. And I think they kind of I don't know, maybe joined up or something. I'm not clear about that. But eventually, from refurnishing, refinishing furniture um, and maybe buying and selling furniture, he got into the storage business and then eventually got into the moving and storage business. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And your mother, uh, during this time, your mother, when we, we spoke on the phone and we had a long conversation, which was very nice, and you mentioned that your mother was a stay-at-home mom during that time. Yeah, she was. She had seven children all together. And um, she was an only child and married at 18 prior to the war and um, then lost her firstborn. So it must have been very difficult for her, um, having her husband away and her child dying. And, you know, my, my older brother, who was just a year younger than Jane, was really traumatized by her loss. And so I think my mother, you know, when my dad came home, she just decided she was going to have a larger family. But at one point, I think she was you know, kind of overcome by the numbers. And uh, she hired uh, an English woman, Agnes Donegan, to come live with us and help her out and help her raise up all these kids. So 
that's what she did. And Agnes was with us for mm, about eight years, I think, maybe more. And she was uh, she was English. She was from Liverpool, and her husband had had been shot and killed in the First World War, and she was left with two children to raise up. So anyway, she was there to to help us all along, and uh, she did a really good job of it. Okay, well, it it sounded like when we spoke before that Agnes had a uh, important impact in your life. I would uh, be curious to find out more about her. So, was she living in the house, or she was just uh, so she was there full time? She was there full time. She had a, a day or two off during the week, and she loved to walk because as a child in Liverpool, she walked the beaches all the time, and so my mother would take her to the far end of Virginia Beach. And then pick her up late in the day at the other end of the the beach. She loved walking on the beach, and that's what she did a lot on her time off. Or if, there were times when she'd go back to England, and she would work with NGOs, actually, helping mostly with elderly people. So she had she had a big heart. She was socially aware, and she was amazing. She she worked for a time in an orphanage in Seattle, and she was telling telling us stories. You know, I was about 10, 11, 12, tell us stories about how she coaxed girls off the roof of the orphanage because they were depressed and suicidal. And it really, it was her stories that made me realize that, yeah, we need to attend to other people and their their difficulties in life. And uh, I think she really helped me develop a social consciousness that maybe I wouldn't have developed. You know, it would have been different without her. She was really an inspiration, and um, she provided an education even though I don't think she realized that at the time, but she did. Yeah. Nice. You know, I'm trying to imagine where these conversations took place, mainly between you and her. Was it while she was working, she was explaining this to you? or Because it sounds like they were more like impromptu uh, lessons through storytelling. They were. Like we'd be sitting, we had a big round kitchen table, and sometimes we'd just sit there and she'd tell us, you know, a story or two or... You know, sometimes on Saturday morning, she'd make pancakes for us, and we'd have pancake races. And then at the end of the race, you know, we'd be sitting around, bellies full, ha-ha, I won. And she, you know, she just launched into a story and something about her life or something that she did. Yeah. We're talking about the 50s. And did you have a television at that time? Yes, we did. Okay. And so were you and your siblings watching a lot of television or reading books? Or what were you doing uh, to pass the time? Well, we were outside most of the time. We'd come home from school, make a sugar sandwich. Whoa. (laughs) And then, remember, white bread and sugar on top, and maybe a little bit of butter. Delicious. Yeah, that's what we'd eat. And then we'd go racing outside again, and we had forts, and as we got older, we had uh, a sailboat, a little sailboat, 
And then later we graduated, we had a rowboat, but later we graduated to a, a, a little boat with a motor, lost the motor overboard because we hadn't tightened it down tight enough and had to row all the way back home. But we were always outside. Eventually we had a little motorboat, speedboat, and we would ski. And this, this is so interesting to me when I think about it now. The bay was full of stinging nettles in the summertime. So we would put on Crisco on our bodies. <laughs> we'd, we'd smear it all over our bodies to keep the nettles away from us. But there were, there were also water moccasins in the bay. And you could see them from time to time. They'd lift their heads above the water. And sometimes there was a bulkhead on part of our property and down below. And sometimes you'd, you'd find the, the water moccasin sleeping in the sun. And you go, you know, screaming back to dad, 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 there's a snake in the, on the bulkhead. So he'd go down and kill it. But we would water ski in that bay with those water moccasins and those jellyfish we didn't care and we weren't afraid and it was you know when i think about that oh yeah and the oyster shells there were oyster shells everywhere so when you come in on the skis you had to be very careful not to put your feet on the ocean floor cuz you know there are lots of oyster shells down there sharp so <laughs> it was it was an amazing, amazing time. I'm grateful to my parents for giving us the liberty that we had, their freedom to come and go. And, you know, there were times when I almost set one of my little forts on fire cooking bacon or something. You know, we just did without fear on the part of our parents. They knew where we were, but I most of the time they knew where we were, but it's different now. Oh, it is for sure. But it sounds like you had a tremendous amount of independence that was provided yeah. to you by your parents. Yes. And it sounds very aquatic as well, too. Yeah, very aquatic. Very. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so as you're uh, becoming a teenager, what are you thinking about how you are going to be uh, participating in the world? Like, what were you dreaming of about what you wanted to do? Do you remember that at all? Oh, I had no idea. I was, I, I went away to school when I was 15 years old uh, to a school in St. Louis. And uh, I was there for three years until I graduated. And that was an informative time, or a formative time, because I learned even greater independence there. And that was one of the problems. Now I think about it when I came here, because I was an American citizen, I couldn't work here. I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I was used to being independent, making my own money, blah, blah. And I, I was just kind of flummoxed over how I was going to support myself, how I was going to contribute to this relationship here. Anyway, so high school, my teen years were difficult. Going away to school wasn't difficult, though, because I, I, I was involved and I had good friends there. I felt safe there. I, I didn't get really homesick. So I had some things going for me that made that experience an interesting one. And 
uh, a good education if I put my mind to it. And but really, I had I had no idea where I was going other than I was going to go to university and do that, run that race, and. Yeah. Did your other siblings uh, go away to school? Yeah, yeah, they did. My sister went for two years, and my brother went for a year. Okay, and mm-hmm. and the reason for that was? Um, I I don't really know. I think it was in part it was my mother's overwhelm, and um, the only thing regrettable about that about going away to school at that age is that you miss a lot of things that are going on within the family unit. And um, that can be a little disorienting. Like, why didn't I know that? How come that happened? Or, you know, if I talk to my brothers and sisters about their lives and their perspective, it's very different from mine because I was away for those years. Sure. Did you get to go home during holidays? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh And sometimes I'd go home like at Easter or so I'd go home. I'd go home for Christmas. That was the only holiday I'd go home for between the fall and the summer. Um, sometimes I'd go home with um, a friend and her family who lived closer by. Like one year I went to Kansas City, Missouri, yeah. with a friend. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was an interesting experience. Okay, well, why? Why was that an interesting experience? Well, it's just because... I guess, you know, I got to be with another family, and <laughs> I remember um, my friend Patty, her her father had a sailboat, and we went sailing somewhere, and that was quite fun. And her mother, she packed, get this, tuna fish sandwiches made with raisins and shredded carrot, and she called it tuna carrot raisin sandwiches. And I went, What? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm thinking, oh, I'm in another culture here. Like, this is, wow. But you know what? They're good. Really? I made some the other day, actually. Wow. Okay. I, this is. Yeah, they're good. Stood the test of time. Yeah. Because the raisins take kind of that fish away of the tuna fish and the carrot. You know, carrot's just there. But yeah, it's good. Okay. <laughs> Try it. <laughs> so you knew that you were going to go to university, though, you mentioned. Is that... Uh... Yeah, I did. And I, I did that for four years and graduated. After I graduated, I went to live with a friend and her family in California. I had done this after high school. I, yeah, after finishing high school, too. I went with the same friend to California. And her parents lived in Beverly Hills. Her father was a fashion trade publisher, magazine publisher. And I learned that in Beverly Hills, if the cook needs a cup of sugar, you have to call down to the local grocery store and have it delivered. You don't go next door to borrow a cup of sugar, not in Beverly Hills. So when I came home after that uh, trip, I, um, okay, eventually after I finished university and did that little travel deal, I I got a job teaching. Uh, I had a BA in sociology. And, you know, in the 60s, that's what everybody got. You know, the sciences and math and technology and all that. 
wasn't on the table at that time. Okay. And so there was more humanities, I guess, and more, it seemed to be more people graduating in the humanities. You just said four years of university, but let's just, let's just take a look at that for a sec. Cause four years is a long period of time, right? Oh, but it, yeah. it sounds like that you, you came to that decision to go into sociology because it was kind of what was normal or expected. I didn't know what else. I, I was interested in the arts, mm -hmm. but I didn't go in that direction because you know, your parents will always tell you, you've got to do something you can fall back on. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't think I wanted to teach, but then I ended up doing that. So I wouldn't say I was a highly motivated college student. I wasn't. And I just ran the race to get the degree because I was told that that's what you had to do. And no adult ever said to me, Judy, what is it in your heart to do? What do you think you might be interested in? You know, and, and the arts were always in my life in some form or fashion. But I just, you know, to go to art school, what are you talking about? You know, that doesn't give you anything. So I was fortunate. I got to go to university, get that degree. And right out of college, I got a job. I was teaching children who had reading problems in a center that was funded at that time by the federal government to focus and work with children who had various disabilities. Like this center, the children, this would never happen today, but the children were bused from their schools to our center where they received remedial education. On the other hand, there were children who came all day, particularly deaf, blind, language, well, the children with language deficits, language disorders, would come only for an hour or two every day. So this, I was there for two years mm -hmm. before... I wanted to travel again, and I went traveling after two years. Uh, I had met my first husband, Michael, who'd been a helicopter pilot in the Navy and um, never had to go to Vietnam, fortunately. He served in the Caribbean and the, and the Mediterranean on these big uh, helicopters that flew supplies from one ship to another ship. Anyway, we got married and went traveling to Central and South America for hmm. almost a year and then settled in Austin, Texas. Okay. I want to delve into that, definitely. But I also want to just ask, when you had that experience of teaching for those two years with yeah. kids with disabilities, yeah. what did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about them and the world possibly through that experience? I was working with a little girl who was six years old, and it seemed that her mother was very fearful. Her child wasn't, um, there's always an emotional component when a child is not learning. And so the mother was quite uh, distraught and very kind of overbearing to the point where 
I realized that I had to encourage this child. I had to give her enough support to let her mother's hand go to walk into my classroom. And the mother was not happy with that. She wanted to take the child out of out of my classroom. And I only worked with one child at a time. I didn't have a class of children. Wow. I had a lot of direction and a lot of guidance. But, uh, you know, I, I could kind of formulate things depending upon, you know, what we all thought needed to happen for a particular child. So at least, you know, what kind of education or remediation or whatever needed to happen for a child. And, you know, I don't know. That experience with that mother, uh, it, it's like... When you work with people, you have to take them from where they are. You cannot impose something on someone. You can support them. You can listen. You might offer suggestions. But you can't, you can't impose because they may not be ready for it or they disagree with it or maybe it's not the right thing to do, whatever, you know. So it's kind of a delicate balance. And working with people. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, uh, it sounds really good. You know, you got to meet people where they are and you cannot impose. No. Because I I feel like when you try to impose upon people, ultimately you're going to run into resistance. Exactly. Yeah. And where does that get you? Mm, Or where does it get them? It gets you in a struggle. That's where it gets you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So would you say that that, from that lesson that you're speaking of right now was learned from the time that you were teaching or or did you yeah. kind of have an understanding about that through your schooling or beforehand? No, or? I didn't have that through my schooling. It took working with other professional people and, you know, having good communication about these kids and developing relationships with their families and going to see their families in their homes and offering support to them and, you know, answering questions for them. And, you know, it took experience. It took getting getting out there. Sitting in a classroom, learning about social theory or whatever, I'm sorry, it just doesn't, doesn't cut it. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so at this point, you're a young woman. You are yeah. four years of university, and then you're in this job for two years. And mm-hmm. so... It sounded like there was a lot of uh, on-the-job learning that happened. Yes, exactly. It, yeah. wa- it was. And I was amazed. I was first hired to teach language arts to juvenile delinquent boys. That's quote, unquote. And then that program fell apart, but I'd already signed a contract. So then they decided, well, she can work with these kids. And... um I don't know. It just it's it was almost like there was something else at work there because I I had never quite envisioned myself doing what I was doing, but I did it. And you know, I was trained in testing and blah blah blah. And I think, you know, I was appreciated and I think I did a good job for the time I was there. I took a lot of risks. And, you know, seems like, and they kind of all paid off. And 
Huh. Well, what do you mean by yeah. risks? What risks? Well, I guess it was risky to me because, you know, okay, so I'm trained in this test format for kids who aren't reading to diagnose where their deficits are. And these tests are designed for pinpointing these deficits. And I would have to report my findings to a supervisor of special education, the head of the center, another teacher, whatever. And that, it felt so risky to me because I was just learning. But I never got called down. I never got corrected. I made sense, even though I wasn't sure I was making sense because I felt like I was still learning. And so, I, you know, I felt, I guess I felt like I was risking my position there or something. But uh, I don't know. I persevered and it worked out. Okay. So are you basically saying that with um, the the job that you were given, you kind of went out of the parameters a little bit and and sort of like pushed past a little bit of what was expected of you and and then that worked out okay. You never there was never really any blowback from it. Is that what you mean? Or well, you know, I consider myself a listener. And I remember that I was in on a meeting about a young boy, a youth who had gotten into trouble and um, there was a, a li- liaison person who worked in the center with these these youths that had gone awry in some way. So one day I was sitting in a meeting about one of these kids, and I don't remember why I was there. This was early on, and so I I listened, but I didn't feel like I had the time invested there to say anything. I was just listening, trying to get a feel for what this person did and how he worked with this kid. And, and you know, so I didn't say anything in the meeting. And the, the director of the center came over to me and he said, why didn't you say something? I said, well, I was listening. I was trying to understand what, what's happening for this kid and how he's being worked with. You know, it wasn't my position to say anything to begin with because I wasn't in that program and I wasn't working with the kid. And I didn't like that he said that to me (laughs) because I wanted him to see that my strength is in listening and I'm not going to pass judgment about something that I'm not directly involved with, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. The power of listening is actually uh, very, very important. Very. It's very important. We all need to be heard. We do. Yeah. We do. And in order to be heard, somebody needs to listen. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So you you, uh, did this job for two and a half years, is that correct? And uh, and then you said you you got married at this point. Yeah, then we got married. Michael and I got married (laughs) and um, went to Central and South America. And um, that was an illuminating experience. Okay, let's hear why. That, that was, that was, I'd never been around that kind of poverty before. When I was in Europe, I didn't see that kind of poverty, but Central South America is full of poverty. And it really, well, it radicalized my husband, number one. And for me, 
I, I just knew that I was going to continue doing something with people when I went back home. And we ended up settling in Austin, and I worked in a East Austin barrio school with mostly Mexican-American kids, again, in a resource uh, setting for kids who were having learning problems. And then I was also doing volunteer work for Planned Parenthood at the same time, and I would talk to uh, young people about birth control. And then I worked on Sarah Weddington's uh, volunteer staff. Sarah Weddington was a lawyer who argued Roe versus Wade to the Supreme Court. She wasn't even 30 years old. She became, after she argued the case, um, she ran for political office and became a Texas representative. And then later went on to become Jimmy Carter's advisor on women's affairs. And she's she's now deceased. Um, and then, you know, after I, I taught for a couple of years in the resource classroom, I went to work um, at a, a local training hospital, Breckenridge Hospital in Austin. And I worked with surgery patients, and I did problem pregnancy counseling and was with women when they had their termination procedures. So that that time in Austin really was again formative because I I realized that I could I could be with people who were facing some pretty grim decisions. That's got to be pretty intense. It can be, but for most women it, it's it's liberating for them. It is a regrettable decision. It's a hard decision. It is the right decision for them if they so determine that. And when it's over, there's relief and there's gratitude and there's, okay, I can get on with my life now. Because these, most of these women were either college students or they were indigent women meaning women who qualified for uh, charity care through the hospital. So and most of these women had children already, and they could not afford another child. And, you know, social systems aren't set up to support single women with children very effectively. You know, they get a, a little bit of money and you know, particularly in the States, it's like they get food stamps and they get, you know, a little bit of money and they, you know, maybe there's an apartment for them, maybe not. You know, it's not, you know, it's difficult if women have children that they feel they can't support. Yes. Yeah. And also, what uh, year was this in roughly? So to give a little bit of a timeline. Oh, well, uh, Roe versus Wade was handed down in 73. So I was in Austin until 1980. Okay. All right. And then I went to Costa Rica. So this is the uh, the mid to late 70s that you're yeah. having these experiences. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear about the sense of uh, liberation and gratitude uh, yeah. from what you're seeing about communicating with these women during yeah. that time. Because... Before Roe versus Wade, 
I know that you weren't living in Texas before then and you had moved to Texas, but, and just to give you a little bit of a preamble here is that, uh, from my understanding, things are drastically different in different States. Yes, they are. Yeah. Yes, they are. And so you were seeing the situation play out in Texas. And so from what you were seeing in Texas, like, was that, from your perspective of going on in different states as well, too? Is it similar or different? Or Well, each state, well, actually before Roe was hand, handed down in New York, New York had declared abortion legal. And so women were flocking to New York for terminations. And yeah, so clinics were opening there and serving a lot of women from wherever. You know, I I don't know, well, we know now what's happening in the States, and it seems like the decision to provide abortions rests with the state as opposed to the federal government and the Supreme Court. So that seems to be the way it is right now, which is a huge step backwards. It's terrible. Yeah. And so when you were having these experiences working in these situations, you said that part of the reason that your life trajectory moved in that direction was from seeing the poverty in Central and South America. Yes. So that encouraged you to go even deeper in wanting to work with people who were in less than desirable situations? Yes. Did you have that capacity within you when you were younger or was it something that you developed along the way? Um, I think I, when I was younger, I had this sensitivity. I couldn't really define it when I was young, but I, I had this empathy for the underdog. I remember my, um, in one of my classes, there was a little boy who whose family was quite poor. And I I don't know how I knew that, but I just I just felt for him because he felt he seemed so sad. And, you know, I think isn't empathy empathy is common to all of us, hopefully. And if if a person doesn't have empathy, there's something terribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> terribly wrong. It's true. <laughs> so so you know, I I just think, you know, as I was as a child, I was sensitive to this kid and I I recognized it, but I didn't know what to call it. I, I didn't know what to do about it. You know, I I think my my teacher or somebody they got some food together for the family and some blankets or something. I don't I don't remember exactly what what happened there, but I mean, it was an effort beyond me to solve, to well, to help this family along somehow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just felt really, really, I felt sad for him. I felt great empathy for him. Yeah, but, you know, as you as you got older and you went on this, so you, you went into a situation where you're, you're working with uh, children with various disabilities, and then you go on this trip, and then you double down on wanting to work with people who are disadvantaged, because you, 
could have gone the other direction and been like, what? I love traveling. I want to make a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah. The 80s are coming. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm just curious because there's there's pivotal moments in people's lives yes. and decisions that we make. And yes. uh, it's just a, a curiosity to me as to why people make certain decisions. And I guess what, well, what made you want to uh, really keep going deeper? Well, I could only go deep so far. Because one day in the hospital, the head of OB-GYN education said to me, because he had his interns uh, do the preliminary work for these women having terminations. And he said to me in the hallway in front of a client or a patient, he said, Judy, I want you to counsel 10 women a week and you choose the eight that you think should have an abortion. And I went, I'm sorry. I said, what you're saying to me, telling me to do, violates everything I feel about a woman woman being self-determining and, you know, organizing her own life. I will not do that. So I went to my supervisor and I told her, well, a few months after that, I decided to resign. Because I, I just, I had other interests. So what I did, I enrolled uh, at the University of Texas in interior design. I was going to get another degree. And I got halfway through that degree uh, and went to Costa Rica to see my father, who had been there for a few years. And then I went back to Austin after three weeks in Costa Rica and sold everything in my house, rented my house, and went back to Costa Rica. Okay. Well, I know Costa Rica was a huge part of your life. And yeah. so maybe let's uh, set it up a little bit as to how exactly uh, that <laughs> happened, that trip to go to Costa Rica, and, uh, and then what happened well, when you were first there. I had to do some work around my father and my relationship with my father. That's what motivated me, because by that time, I was divorced, and I had you know, had some difficulties and, and some things I had to face and I had to work out. And my father was key to that. So when I went down to visit him for three weeks, he encouraged me to come back. And so I did. And he lives lived on approximately 90 acres of virgin jungle on the Gulf of Dulce in southern Costa Rica, and the only access is by boat. And at that time, all he had was a CB radio and his boat and motor and kerosene refrigerator, and that was about it. He lived very uh, frugally and very simply with... Uh, the woman he left my mother for. So anyway, I lived with them for about six months and loved it. I just was, it was like being a kid again in, in an environment that was so wondrous that, and being on the water, and after having been in Austin for about eight years, just, oh, it was just magic to me. And so uh, I found a teaching job at the Methodist school in this little town of Golfito, which was nearby my father, father's property. 
And um, so I worked there for about a year, and then I got another job teaching in Manuel Antonio Capos, working with one child in the morning whose father worked for the banana company, and he had to, or in his contract with the banana company, it was stipulated that his his daughter would receive an American education. So I basically tutored her in the morning and had classes of kids in the afternoon for art and English. And they gave me a house, and I had a mo- little motorcycle, and I'd motor to the beach, and I'd, I'd take my one student, Inike, her parents unbelievably put all their trust in me. We'd hop onto my motorcycle and we'd go exploring and we'd go doing this and doing that. And I arranged for her to see a birth in the hospital. And I just created these experiences for her that she to this day has not forgotten. And she's now, I feel like I'm part of her success. She's a very accomplished woman, a businesswoman in Costa Rica now. So you know, I was making my own way and, you know, made friends and Costa Rican friends and expats. And it was, it was, you know, the beach and the water, just a nice environment. Nice. Okay. So yeah. it sounds like you're, you're loving life at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I was. I was. <laughs> it was very cool. <laughs> and, uh, and so for the timeline as well here, you're in your early mid thirties at this point. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah. you you go on this journey to have a reconciliation with your father. Yes. You find that the lifestyle, uh, the climate resonates with you in Costa mm-hmm. Rica. You uh, decide to pack up, go back again to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds as like you integrated into things quite wonderfully. What else about the experience was really resonating to you? It sounds like the job was great. You're riding around in a motorcycle? <laughs> Damn. A little one. A little. Still a motorcycle, little, Judy. <laughs> Still a motorcycle. I was, I was the only woman in this little community riding a motorcycle. Women wouldn't think about Riding motorcycles at that time. There. Okay, so you're a total was, badass American. I was. Why don't you have children? That was the question I got all the time. Why don't you have... Well, it's because I made the decision not to have children. <laughs> oh, you know, it's hard for people to believe sometimes, particularly in that culture where everybody has kids. Right. Pretty much. But that was, that was a choice that you chose Yeah. What in the past, well in the past, or... Oh, yeah. I, I made that choice well in the past. Okay. And made sure I wouldn't. Okay. All right. And so, um, yeah, like other than the, the things that you mentioned, what else was going on in that experience with Costa Rica as the uh, months and years went by? Well, I realized how that time in Costa Rica served me so beautifully given what I needed to do there to reconcile with my father, to stand on my own two feet after a divorce, to enjoy, to meet new people, different people, you know, tourists that would come in or, you know, Costa Ricans themselves from various backgrounds, actually. And it was a very very special time in my life. And I think I just seize the moment. I just seize the time 
I could have put it off. I could have said, oh, no, you know, I don't speak Spanish. I can't fit into this culture in any shape or form. But I went, and I feel like I accomplished what I needed to do with my father. And right before I met Brent, I was ready to leave. I was going to go back to the States, or I was going to go to Mexico, or art school, or something, because I started working again with my art, and I, I needed to aim for something out there. But then when I met Brent, it was like so compelling that I come here with him that, you know, that's what I did. That's what I did. And it's given me the opportunity to pursue my art. Let's go there. In ways that I never would have imagined. Okay. Well, because you mentioned art in uh, earlier in the interview. Yes. And uh, you said that you were pursuing it uh, in the, the later years in Costa Rica. So maybe if you could describe the art that you were working on and where, well, where that was taking you. Well, I was just, um, I, you know, I hadn't really had any formal art instruction except for a basic design class. Well, no, I can't say that because I went back to school and I had to take some rendering classes and some architecture classes and some mechanical drawing and stuff like that at the University of Texas. So, yeah, I did have some formal training of sorts, but I just set about doing little stuff. And I had a friend who had a shop in Capos and she took a few things that I had painted, and she sold them. And so that was nice. And, you know, I just kept kind of doing my thing. So when I came to Pender Island, Brent and I were living on his boat. He had built a 50-foot ferro-cement topsail schooner. That's a big boat. A big boat. But after a couple years living on the boat, we realized that we would probably be happier in a house, so we rented Earl Hastings' old farmhouse for $100 a month. And upstairs was an attic's room, which I converted to my studio. And so I started working up there. So we lived in the farmhouse while we built our little cabin, and then we built a workshop studio, and then we built the house. But we lived in the cabin while we built the house. But anyway, we'd moved out of Earl's. Um, but I had my studio space by then. So I had time here to focus on my art. And I would spend well, six, seven hours every day in my studio. I did take some informal classes. and But mostly it was just a lot of long, hard work. And... It it just gave me purpose here. You know, I, I always thought it was a bit difficult for women here because unless you're really inner-motivated or you got a good job off-island, <laughs> you were either going to work in the bar or clean houses. It was, you know, back in those times, it was really, really limited for women. And I was doubly limited because I didn't have a work permit. So you really so, delved into making art. I did. Yeah. I did. And what were you working with? Was it acrylic? Oh, I started with watercolor. And then, you know, most artists do this, I think. 
You know, they start watercolor, acrylic, oil. Mm -hmm. I had to leave oil at one point because of the mediums that were toxic. They seemed to be affecting me, so I stopped that and went back to acrylic. Now I'm back at oil because the materials aren't that toxic any longer. And that that's my love. Oil is my love because it feels like it's of the earth. It's not acrylic. It's not plastic. So that's where where I am now. But I realize at this point in my artistic pursuits, things are changing again. Things are kind of morphing because I'm getting older and I'm not spending as much time in my studio or producing as much or reaching out to other communities with my art. So I, I don't know quite what's ahead for me now, but that's okay. You know, I'll probably paint until I can't paint any longer because it's part of me now. Lovely. Yeah. So when you said uh, in the past you're reaching out to other communities with your <laughs> art, uh, maybe mm -hmm. you could describe that a little bit. So you're, you're spending all this time making the art, but a huge part of being the artist is also trying to sell your art. Well, yeah, and that's not easy. I did have a really astounding experience here where this collector bought a number of my pieces, and I was just stunned by it. For various reasons, but that was that was kind of out of left field, and uh, I'm grateful for that. But it's kind of like, okay, what's next? <laughs> so I re I really want to go back a bit, and it, it kind of relates to my feelings about being part of Pender. This environment, the physical part, didn't feel alien. But the people felt alien because they were all white. They were, you know, most, mostly retired. The young people were kind of tight. And after a couple of years of feeling like I didn't really fit in somewhere, I started teaching Spanish to, to folks who would go to Mexico mostly every year. And that was, that made me feel good. That kind of was the shoe in. Pender. Like I felt like I was giving something and receiving something. And it was okay. You know, I was feeling more at ease and happier to be here because I was finding myself just longing for those times when we go back to Costa Rica. Yeah. Well, it, it obviously sounds like teaching was a big part of your life and mm -hmm. that um, not doing that probably, you probably missed that as well too. Yeah. 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 Being with people and, you know, being, you know, being a, a part of someone's journey in a positive way, you know, working with kids or adults or <laughs> whatever. Did someone come to you with the idea of teaching Spanish or did you come up with that? On no, I just came up with the idea. Okay. Yeah. And where did you do and, the lessons? Well, well actually, it, well, we did it in, in various people's homes. But I think mostly when we were living in the fo old farmhouse, I think, yeah, people would come for, you know, uh, once a week, I guess, and we'd, we'd have conversation and a little bit of grammar, and we would, yeah, have games and kind of stuff, you know. You can, you can, al you can always teach adults like they're children, you know, with another language, and yeah. 
So I learned then that if you're not comfortable in a community, then you have to get out there and do something that is going to be a help to the community. And by teaching these folks Spanish so they felt more comfortable in their travels, it was fun and it was, uh, I felt like I was contributing something, you know? Yeah. It sounds like such obvious advice because I think that we know that through experience, that when you get out there and you're around other people and you're contributing, like it feels good. But it it's interesting, like why why does it feel good? Why does that feel good? Like what are we, what's happening in these interactions that's giving us this feeling? You know, that's such a good question. And I probably thought about that a lot because I'm I'm basically kind of a an insular person. I'm, you know, to make art, it's a quiet endeavor and you're with yourself quite a bit. And you would think that I would long to be with people every day, every weekend, get my social time in, that kind of thing. But that's not the way it works for me. It's different. Sorry, are you introverted? I can be. I can spend a lot of time with myself. We all have social needs, and and I have social needs. But on the other hand, you know, I'm happy to be alone, I guess. But I'm not alone because I'm married and I have a, you know, pretty wonderful relationship with my husband. And, you know, so we're good friends. And a lot of, I suppose, my social needs are met that way. And when you're in partnership with someone, it's different than being solo, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you came up with the idea of teaching Spanish, and then you found uh, an ability to connect with the community in the way that you hadn't before. It gave you a sense of purpose and belonging and uh, joy, it sounds mm-hmm. like. And then what else has also been part of your experience on on Pender Island uh, since you've been here? Because it's, it's from the, the mid-80s, is that correct? Yes, that, from, yeah. from 85. So I've lived here 38 years. <laughs> it's a long time. It is a long time. Not as long as Brent. He's been here 40-some years. I, anyway, artistically, you know, I've associated myself with the Red Tree Gallery at Hope Bay. We, I was part of the co-op that ran that gallery for 13 years. That was uh, a really satisfying experience. I've staged three big art shows on our land over the years. And I also had the opportunity to work with RCMP Victim Services here for about seven years. So, yeah, I would say... and. You know, Brent and I worked on environmental projects and the community hall. We were part of the group that got the community hall rolling and Hope Bay. So we've both been quite involved in the community over time and made our contributions and so forth. So I'm pretty much here now. (laughs) I'm very much here. Yeah. 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 Uh, one thing you mentioned as well too that uh, you said that uh, when you when you first came here that you felt that 
Pender was pretty white because it's really white. It's very white. Oh it's my a, god! And and your experience growing up in Virginia was not that. No, it wasn't. No, and no. and so you know, I, I I don't know too many people who were um, born and raised in that part of the world that you were. And then had that uh, experience in life and then coming to live on Pender. I know a lot of people were born in England and, you know, coming over from Vancouver like myself or Victoria. But, you know, in terms of um, your experience growing up in a very like uh, multiracial situation. Yes. I guess it obviously was normal to you as a, as a young girl. Uh, yes, it was. It was very normal to have black and brown people, Asians around. Not not so much in my immediate neighborhood, however. This is a pretty white neighborhood, uh, and of course the schools um, at one time were segregated and all of that. My awareness of racism was pretty um, pretty dull. I guess is how I can put it. It, because any racism that I experienced in my home was pretty subtle. Like, I don't remember my parents saying anything derogatory about African Americans, um, but my father employed mostly African Americans, and I remember at one time they wanted to unionize in his business, but he wouldn't have anything to do with it. And there were probably, you know, maybe a handful of times that either he or my mother said anything uh, unkind about black people. Um, But it was there. It was there. Sometimes I would miss the school bus because we had a, a little distance to walk to get to the school bus. So if my mother couldn't take me, she'd call my father and he'd have one of his black workers come pick me up and take me to school. And I remember being one day going to school with this guy. And when we'd come to an intersection in the road, I would pretend to drop something on the floor of the car and bend down so no one would see me in the car with this black man. So I was getting the message, but it wasn't that overt. We had a black maid who came once a week to do what my mother called the heavy cleaning, and she was wonderful. Her name was Sarah Harris. And I I had grown up with black maids around when I was young, you know, like probably from a baby on until, you know, I think Sarah was with us until my, I don't know how, I was way at school when she left, I guess, so I, I don't remember when she left the family. But anyway, I remember having great empathy for her, too, because, well, number one, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why she didn't have a husband. She kept having children, but there was no husband in the picture. And I didn't understand that, and I thought that that was making our life really hard. Um, any, anyway, I think most of us 
don't understand how subtle racism can be. If it's blatant, we get it. But if it's subtle, it's hard to grasp and understand. I think by having Agnes in our family, having her her influence in in the way we were being raised and what we were thinking about other people was was really helpful like she opened up another world for us other than you know this sort of southern racist thing going on you know as i talk about it it feels quite emotional to me because i i know it's so wrong it's so wrong and you know i know there's racism in this country there's no doubt about it but I, I just want to say I'm I'm so grateful for being in Canada because the Canadian ethic is so much closer to my personal ethic than that of the United States. The fact that there's a there's a social conscience here that is quite it's quite visible. It's there. It's woven into this culture. In the States, they still struggle with that. And because it seems socialistic or communistic or, you know, they've got these notions, you know, rugged individualism or pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, all that still exists there. But there's there's a kindness here towards people that I really respect. Now, you know, now I know that's not always the case, but it's still, I'm just speaking generally, you know, it's a... It's a social conscience that exists here. Yeah. How long do you think it took you to notice that when you first moved to Pender Island slash Canada? How how long did that take to um, come to that conclusion? Oh, I think it took a while. It took a while. I I remember. Oh, and not only that, but the political system here, the governmental system, the parliamentary system is different. So I I had to get used to that. I remember saying to Bill Deverell one day, "I said, Bill, what in the world is a riding?" <laughs> so so I now know what a riding is. But um, yeah, probably took a little while. Because I, you know, initially I was so concerned with myself and what I was going to do and how I was going to fit in and blah, blah, blah. You know, I wasn't really attending to the larger picture. So, you know, at some point I started attending to the larger picture. I could feel it. I could see it. You know, people volunteering here, the organizations here, you know, there was interest in making the community better. and you know, more caring community. Yeah. Yeah. The the reason I ask about how long is because I feel like things like this don't reveal themselves very quickly. I agree. They and, don't. Yeah. And that you have to be somewhere for a while to really get a reasonable grasp on what's going on. And, you know, you have a unique life experience where you spent the first 30 plus years of your life in the United States and then a significant chunk of time solely living in Costa Rica and then coming up to Canada, but also going back and forth to Costa Rica. So 
to me, I would assume, and let me know if this is correct or not, that the person that you are today is certainly influenced by all three of those different countries. And you have a perspective on life that uh, nobody else has exactly <laughs> like that, right? That I've run into. And no. so this is a very difficult question I think I'm coming to here, but you've alluded to a couple things already about your perception of reality and, and what you believe. But is there anything else or something more specific about how you walk through this world and and your belief structure that is informed by those three places and where you're at in your life today? Wow, Chris, that's a really good question. I would say that uh, with the exception of Texas, my experience there, that living in Virginia, Living in Costa Rica, living on his tiny island. Like, I, I don't believe we own land. I believe we take care of land. And in those three places, my attachment to nature has been very strong. Being outdoors as a kid all the time living in Costa Rica in the jungle and seeing incredible wildlife and sea life and living on this tiny island where, you know, we, we struggle to keep lands green and with trees as much as possible, as much as humanly possible. Th those environments have I don't, I don't want to sound silly about this, but those environments have supported me emotionally and spiritually, and I am so grateful that I've had those three environments in my life. I, they have enriched me tremendously. And so... All those experiences I've had in those three places, um, nature sustains us. Nature guides us. Nature gives to us. And that, that's what I feel about all those places in my life. Yeah, and you're saying that nature on a spiritual level is connecting with you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, that may sound trite or... I, you know, but it, it's true. We need nature. We need it. And, you know, we can all stand like trees. We can stand like trees, straight and productive and sharing and all of that. You know, actually, that kind of image came to me this morning in the shower. <laughs> Just thinking about, I can stand like a tree. I am a tree. I'm just like that tree out there. You can edit that out if you want. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I know, I know, well, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I have an idea what you're talking about. And I have actually practiced uh, standing outside and 
grounding down with my toes and my feet and pretending to be a tree. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. it it feels really wonderful because we generally walk through this world very disconnected yes. to the natural environment that we're in. Yes. And that when we have focused attention and purpose with trying to connect with the land, some really interesting and magical things open themselves up to us. Yes, yes. So I I do understand what you're saying about uh, we are like trees. Yeah, we we can be like trees. Yeah. So to go from the aquatic sand experience in Virginia to the jungle experience in Costa Rica to the like small Gulf Island hanging out in the uh, Pacific experience here. And uh, those three different environments, you've you've uh, really continually found a connection with nature. Yes, yes, and that that helps sustain me. Yeah. When you say sustain you, what do you mean exactly? Nature has an embracing quality. If you see it, if you feel it, if you allow it, I suppose that's how some people feel about God. That God embraces me. But I feel that the natural environment embraces us all. And it's it's that embrace, I suppose, that I feel that is a comfort to me. If I'm disturbed about something, I'll go walk on the beach. I've done that all my life. And it's there's something about a walk on the beach that can dispel the intensity of that experience. And that to me is like an embrace. It's like a calming. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. And I think most of us understand what that's like. That yes. um, Nothing like a little fresh air. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gotta get out of here and get some air. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And that's the thing about the jungle. And I feel it here to a degree, but in the jungle, in a virgin jungle, the air is soft, fragrant. It is the most amazing air you ever want to breathe. It's fabulous. Cool. Mm-hmm. I've uh, I haven't been to that many jungles, but uh, when you said the word "soft," oh, it's so soft. That resonates. Yeah, so soft. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Judy, we are almost at the end of our little <laughs> journey here. Well, I hope I made some sense. <laughs> you made dollars it's, and cents. <laughs> it's been nice to talk about my experiences and in, in my little life, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, Thank you. but Thank you. But before, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you wanted to uh, to leave with <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and and have some final words here? I don't think so. Your last question was enough for, <laughs> for me to come up with an ant really caused me to to think about those environments I've been in and what what they mean to me. That that was a big question for me. I don't think I have anything more to to add. Okay. Well, thank yeah. you very much for coming over and doing this. Today. You're you're welcome. Thank you very much. It's All been right. fun. Okay. We're done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Right on. Oh my God, Chris. Why do you mean, oh my God? Oh my God. Why do you mean, oh my God? 
Oh, I just had to include that at the very end because that was so sweet. And Judy is so sweet. If you didn't get that from the interview, what a very nice woman she is. And that was fantastic to get to do that with her. And you're sweet as well, too, listener, for staying around to the very end of this episode. And the reason you're sweet is because, well, because you listen. And it's really nice that people listen. And it seems like more people are listening these days, which really keeps me motivated and inspired to keep rolling on these. So thank you for showing up and listening to these episodes. If you'd like to stay up to date with new episodes as they're coming out, there's multiple different ways to do that. You can do that through Spotify, through Apple Playlists, on Podbean. I'm also on YouTube now. And if you really, really enjoy these and you'd like other people to hear them as well, too, I would highly encourage you to share these on social media because I would like more people to hear them. And I only have so much reach out in the world there. So please feel free to do that. And one more time, if you are at all interested in recording your own personal audio memoir. So that is a private recording for you, all in your own voice, to share with your family members. You can contact me at myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. There's a link for that in the show notes, and I can provide you with all the information you need to decide if that's something you'd like to do. I'd like to end off by saying thank you to Ben McConkie very much for providing the theme music to this podcast. And yep, I think that's about it. Until next time.